music, news, interviews, live events, and more. Welcome to the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. Hey, it's Matt Pinfield, and this is the Hivecast, and I'm sitting here with Jack White. Jack, great to see you, man. Good to see you, too. The new album, Blunderbuss, is such a cool record. You know, when I first put it on, I loved the fact that it was really highlighting a lot of the piano stuff that you do. Mm. Tell me about making this record and the fact that you, you it's a pretty piano-heavy record. Yeah, it got like a, a scenario here in Nashville where I can pull from a lot of different session musicians and a lot of players who play regularly, touring bands, bluegrass musicians, you know, country musicians, rock and roll players and all that. So there's so many people around. And from producing all these 45s on Third Man for the last few years, I, I would know certain people like this fiddle player would be good, you know, that harmonica player would be good on this song. And you could, as a day, you know, you could start the day not knowing what we're going to do and call up a few people from town and see who's available and have people come in. And all of a sudden we're working on a track nobody knew when we woke up that morning we were going to be doing. And uh, one of the piano players in town, Brooke Wagner, uh, I started to really, really dig what she was doing. She, she could really just play anything I was sort of thinking up in my head. Yeah, like you basically know, you could translate that to her and she, yeah. would, she would come up with it. So she, so she played about half the piano on the record because she, she's really inspiring for me. Third Man is, uh, for me, is just like, that's completely giving back, Jack. I mean, mm. for you, it's like, you know, I know what a lover of music you are and I get excited whenever I get the new singles that come out. Tell me about how you conceived of Third Man and what you expected it to be in the beginning. I mean, now it's incredible. You're putting out records from... You know, a ton of different artists, whether it be C6 Steve or Tom Jones, and there's a lot of great stuff. How did it start for you? Well, you know, we were first just going to re-release old 45s I'd been part of, old White Stripes 45s, that I finally got the masters back to actually re-release them on vinyl. So we were just going to be doing that when we first opened the doors here, but then, you know, things started to trickle. We built a live venue, photo studio back here, uh, analog recording booth, dark room. Let's have a little record store up front too to sell these records. And I hey, love the front you know. of your right here in uh, you know in Nashville. You can actually go in and and finger through records like you used to. Mm. You know, like which one of yeah. the things I miss. Yeah, exactly, you know? exactly. And we're hope, you know we have these series of records like these singles called the Blue Series, which is just people coming through town like it'd be Pokey Lafarge or Tom Jones or something like that. You want to come and do one or two tracks? Yeah, I'm playing at the Ryman on Thursday. I'll, I'll come in and we'll do it on Wednesday. Right. And then on Wednesday morning, they come in and we talk about what songs we're going to do. And then that morning, I call up the players to come in that afternoon. And then we do it all in one day. And the energy of trying to do something in one day is really great. It's, it's totally different if you were working on an album. I mean, it's kind of like it was done back in the day. You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. when people had to go in and they had a certain amount of studio time and they had to nail it. You yeah, know? exactly. And I think people get excited by that because it's, it's a rare thing to happen nowadays. Usually you're kind of given as much time as you want, you know. And, Figure out what you want to do. Like you used to, you used to have to come to the studio with your stuff prepared, you know. Yeah. All that, and so this is a way of kind of rep- getting a different kind of energy, like calling up players who didn't know they were going to play, like on a Tom Jones record that afternoon. Call them in the morning. Are you available? Can you come in? And Tom Jones, not knowing what, what it was going to sound like or whatever, and let's all let's all make something happen that didn't exist before. Okay. Yeah. On Evil, it's great though. I mean, mm. when you when it starts, you can hear your guitar. You get that feeling. Yeah. yeah. So you. Tom Jones against your backdrop is just—it's a really cool mm. vibe. Was it—is he a guy that you respected and liked? You know, I really like, and he'd been talking to me for years about trying to do something together. So it was it just the timing never worked out. But since now Third Man existed, that when they had called him, like, oh man, this is the perfect thing. If you can come in and do a single, it'd be great. And he was—he was playing the Ryman, so. Uh, it's like one of those things where Nashville, everybody go, comes through. So it's yeah, great. exactly. Right. So you get so you get these these cool moments like that. People are like, literally, you're shipping uh, Third Man, like those 45s all over the world, aren't you? Yeah, and they're, they're massively selling, too. I mean, for vinyl. I mean, this is 2012 now, we're talking about. 
And we have sold 600,000 pieces of vinyl since we opened three years ago. Wow. In, in three years. And that's a lot of vinyl. I mean, uh, the new singles, the new seven inches, not the digital version, but the seven inches of my new singles from Blunderbuss are like 12,000 copies a piece so far in the first month. And uh, for a seven inch, you know, the first White Stripe seven inch, it took us like, what, two years to sell a thousand copies. Yeah. Back in 99 or whatever it was, 98. I love a story and, about you upholstering, like, you know, putting 45s in the couches. Yeah, so yeah. So maybe someday one, some people will be tearing up their couches looking for that rare we, yeah, Jack White yeah. single. Right? We, do, we do a lot of stuff like that here, trying to find new ways. I mean, it's a 100-year-old format vinyl, trying to find things that no one's ever done. You know, on Dead Weather Record, we put music underneath the label. You can, put, you can listen to the music through the paper label. You put the wow. needle on the, the center of the Dead Weather album. And, uh, you know, uh, other things like uh, hidden grooves and and uh, doubled grooves records. Uh, those have been done, but we're, we're trying different twists on them. But uh, another one, we just re- released the Flexi Disc by Balloon. You know? Yeah, yeah, Freedom of 21 from your new album. You actually, how many helium balloons did you let go? A, a, a thousand of them. So. Right, So yeah. that, and, and they were literally, the 45, like the, the Flexi Disc was taped around it. Yeah, yeah, sort of sort of carrying off to wherever. We, we thought they were heading northeast, but then we had this interactive thing. That we could call in and send a picture on the internet and put, post where you found it on a map. Uh, which so where cool. did they find them? Down south, down in Alabama, mostly so far. Wow. You know, we'll see what happens. But they were headed, they were headed towards New York when we let them go. So. <laughs> <laughs> they, t- they took yeah. a detour. Yeah. Which is amazing. And one of the other really cool things is uh, 16 Saltines, your latest single. For Record Store Day, on the B-side is your great cover of Love is Blindness by U2. But there's, mm. it's the craziest thing I've ever seen. It's like your vinyl, co- it's like... Explain it's that. A, it's how, etched how it was, vinyl, yeah. It's it was, got like liquid inside. Oh, the liquid version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 There's two versions. The, the black version has a, an etched vinyl, which is the first style this has ever been done. There was an etched one, uh, a couple of things in the 80s, like a stick. Yeah, split ends. Uh, split ends and sticks. They did, but they did some kind of hologram laser etching thing. Yeah. It's just a totally different uh, scenario that's actually done with actual vinyl. So this is the first time this has been done in this new style. I've never and, seen uh, anything like what I what I saw with the, with the, the liquid, liquid, like record, the blue yeah. liquid. Tell so me how that's the special. Uh, every record we put out, we put out a black version that's uh, unlimited, yeah. it's always stay in print, and then a special edition of it. And the special edition of that of this uh, 16 Saltines 12 inch is a, a liquid filled vinyl. Yeah, it's the wildest so, thing. Yeah, Jack, you've always done great covers. Um, you tribute to the records that you love. Let's go back to talk about like Jolene and how mm. why you covered that and you were a huge fan of that song. What was it? When did you discover that track and decide that you wanted to play it? You know, it was always Meg is a huge music fan, Meg White and the White Stripes. And back when we were playing songs, I was always trying to find common ground, something that two of us would both really dig. You know, she'd love a song like Delta Dawn, like Tanya Tucker or something like that. Yeah, or, we both love Loretta Lynn, and you know, Meg has like ten thousand more records than I do. You know, so she always loved Jolene too. So when we started to mess around with Jolene, and I thought, well, it would be interesting to, from the scenario we were from, the garage rock sort of scene, the easy thing to do would make an ironic version of that, you know, like a tongue-in-cheek version of that, because, yeah. you know, singing from the female's point of view. I was like, like, if we're going to do this, I don't ever want to do an ironic song, you know, yeah. I, I hate that ironic stuff. And Especially so, because, uh, you know, a lot of artists do these ironic versions of songs, and they actually, you, you know they really love the track, but right. they're afraid to admit they love it. Exactly, so, exactly. You know, so they try to bastardize it, yeah. and for me, I'd rather have you yeah. do it the way it's supposed to be yeah, done. I never liked that either, and uh, it's sort of like an insecurity issue kind of thing or something. So like, we did it, and I said, if we're going to do this, let's do this, you know, and I'm not going to change the tense either. Let's keep it in the original tense and look at it from a different point of view. And it was something we really got to feed off of. Yeah. Early on, it was. It was oh, I was surprised people. You know, go over to England. You know, where they don't usually like country music very much. 
but that song hit heavy with them. Yeah, know? they loved your version. Mm. Speaking of great covers, I just don't know what to do with myself, which you also mm. did with White Stripes, which is such a brilliant song. Tell me about that song. Was it something that you knew? Yeah, that was a, a Burt Backrack. You know, we we had uh, another thing. Me and Meg would both be listened to on tour in the van. Uh, uh, like that Backrack box set thing. Yeah, well, we we had covered uh, Little Red Book. Which, Which was great. I mean, love and, and man it. for man. Exactly, yeah. yeah. How weird is it? Like, you know, Burt Bacharach said he never liked the love version. I love the love no, version. No, the love version's great. But the yeah. man for man version's interesting, too, because it's so weird, like the keyboard sound on it that. It is, it is, is, yeah. And I always thought it was weird that they said Little Red Book because the popular notion is black Little book. Black Book. Yeah. And I asked him that when I met Burt Bacharach. He goes, you'd have to ask Hal David. I didn't write the lyrics. So I was like, <laughs> yeah. oh, that's right, I guess. I was asking the wrong guy. It's kind of fun. So, mm. so your version of that is great. Um, Thank you. Um, had you heard the Elvis Costello version before? No, ever? I didn't. No. Yeah, he did on like the Stiffs Alive, and it was when you guys covered it. I was like, oh man, somebody finally mm. knows this song. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, which is great. Yeah. Um, on the new record, you do "I'm Shaking," which is a Little Willie John song, which is so cool. It just got that the, the mm. whole groove of that song. Was it, tell me a bit about how you. Sang. Well, uh, that day in the studio, I, I was trying to shake things up and. I said, well, it's only have female musicians in the studio today. It was the first time I tried that. And so we had like six girls that come in. And I didn't really, none of them knew each other. I didn't know them very well. So a good way to, to start things off is to just cover another song. But instead of getting into my own stuff. So I said, well, let's cover I'm Shaking, a Lily Willie John. I said, someone, can someone go get us the lyrics? and Let's just teach each other how to play this song. And it became what ended up being on the album. It just turned out so good it ended up having to go on the record. It's cool. It's got like a real like, you know, vocally, it's kind of like, it's got that dirty blues feel. It's great. Yeah, you know? yeah, I like it. Now, with uh, with Allison and Dead Weather, you covered the Gary Newman song, Our Friends Electric, which was such a cool song to do. Mm -hmm. Tell me how you ended up deciding to do that track. Uh, similar scenario is to start things off. We'd done it on the song New Pony, Bob Dylan's New Pony, yeah. to start the album session. I said, well, let's, let's try this song and see what we can do with it. So we uh, did that. I ended up going on the album, too. But the very first thing we recorded was Our Friends Electric, and that was, again, the same scenario. Let's start off with this, and then we'll start writing our own music after we're done. And that was one of the first things recorded at this new studio that I built and designed. So we don't really, we didn't really know the gear yet. It's kind of a muddy recording because we didn't really know my new board and the new tape machine and yeah. stuff. So it was just getting our feet wet. But I still love the vibe of that because she killed it. She, her voice was so blown out from the tour we just got off of. It was yeah. really smoky kind of voice she put on there. Because it was like a, uh, was it the Raconteurs Kills show? or was Yeah, it? Raconteurs and Kills. And we had been on tour and we just finished our last show in Atlanta. And we were on our way back to Nashville. I said, well, why don't you hop on the bus? Let's record tomorrow. And LJ and Dean were there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, the, the four of us played together. It's very cool. Um, were you? Was that a song that you liked from? You know, you. Yeah. yeah. I loved it. I got the 45 on one of the first tours I went to in England, and I brought it back, and I and I had the 45 playing on the turntable a lot at the house. So yeah, uh, like, like in like 2001 or something. I mean, that song is the uh, very first ever synth pop number one record, and it's really, really? a rock rock song when you say synth pop because it's it's driving even though it's synth it's still I did guitars. not know that it was the first one yeah and you, you know it's funny Jack you should see top of the pops if you see the old footage the presenter is like making this face like what the hell is this right, like, right, right. <laughs> you know it's unbelievable right. it's incredible stuff so I mean Jack so as far as the tour goes you're gonna actually take out two bands you're gonna take out a male and female band and yes that's right yeah I wanted to shake things up for myself live. I know the thing is, I always thought about going solo, playing solo, whatever. I sort of thought, ah, it's like taking the easy way out, you know, just getting a bunch of guys behind you to play it just like the album. And, you know, I just, it didn't, you know, always felt unappealing to me. I thought, if I can go out and get two different bands and have two different characters and have them revolve on, on tour, 
I've never seen that, and I think that would really inspire me, and it would inspire the musicians to play differently. And uh, they'll see each other, they might compete with each other a little bit. It's like bit. on your toes kind of thing, it's yeah, cool. Yeah, I think so, and it's, it's inspiring. So that, that was one way I thought, it's very expensive, man. I mean, I don't know how long I can do I was going to ask you, but... like, <laughs> to pay for two bands to go yeah, on the road, yeah, man. You it's, know, yeah. got to be costly. You know, one of my favorite moments of uh, Mike It Loud is when you build the guitar with a nail and uh it's like to me yeah. it's like such a quintessential moment of that yeah. film was that a fun film to make and what were the experiences like some of the things maybe that we didn't see it was great because the director was open to ideas like that i said you know can i build a guitar from scratch can we film that he said yes let's do that can i teach my nine-year-old self how to play music instead of showing pictures of me when i was a kid like, i love that young kid where'd you guys get that kid that's my nephew garrett is it really your yeah, nephew yeah. wow <laughs> everybody wonders like they see that they're like who's the young jack there <laughs> very cool yeah, yeah he's a good kid man and he, he looked similar to me when i was nine years old so it was it was good so uh we did that and he was open to all those ideas the director davis guggenheim yeah uh and uh, who did an in- inconvenient truth yeah, did as well. al gore film which is brilliant that's what i got turned on to like working with him on that yeah. But I also was scared. I thought, man, this movie could be a mess. It could be crazy. I don't really want it to be a biography film of all three of us. I mean, I don't really, I mean, yeah, I want to know about Jimmy Page, but I don't want to make a biography about my life at this point in my life. I'm too young, you know, yeah. to, uh, to even, it'd be like it's too, egotistical It's too early to re- or reveal all that, too. Oh, yeah. you know, so, kinda... so anyways, I like the way he attacked and he was open to all ideas. And, and, and uh, what was great, though, is we talked, you know, the three of us talked for hours and hours for days, you know, I mean, they only put some of it in the film, like, we just had lots of conversations between yeah. us, and uh, there's a lot of interesting things that didn't get put out. That's amazing. Um, growing up in a, in a family with, how many kids were you? Ten kids, Jack? Ten kids in my family, yeah. How wild, what was it like growing up as a kid? Like, what, what are yeah. your oh, it's memories about music in the house? It's wild. I mean, it was a very music-loving family, and a lot of different styles going on. You know, my older brothers, some of them into progressive rock and regular rock and roll, classic stuff. There's country music. My parents were from the Depression, so they were into, like, big bands, and and, and uh, you know Roger Miller and uh, all, all kinds of stuff like that, and uh, also they were very conservative, you know, and the, and the kids were kind of liberal, so there's just a lot of big things clashing all the time. You know, it was back in the time that kind of Catholic, hide, you know, burning records, hiding, dad confiscating all the records in the house, kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, that a lot of that. Well, because some of the stuff was like oh, considered risque. Oh yeah, yeah, anything risque, it had to go. You know, you know, if if he caught you with it, you know, kind of that, that kind of scenario. What were some good. of those records of you? I remember being on my dad's bed one time and looking underneath and finding a pile of records that he had confiscated years ago that he'd forgotten about and it was like there was a kiss record in there black sabbath and you know things yeah, like, yeah, like anything with a cover that looked kind of look off, you know? it did yeah. not go with the actual, you know? <laughs> yeah yeah you know it's amazing and then uh so uh and then growing up uh, so are your other brothers and sisters big music fans as well yeah yeah uh, some of them will play and some of them are very very good musicians so. Your mom must be pretty proud. I mean, I mean, she's got to be very proud. She's come to some of your shows. Yeah, yeah. She she comes off, and she's very big music fan. So and she gives me always pointers. I like that song. Yeah, that song's got a good feel to it. You know, so, <laughs> I love when your mom she, tells you that. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know you and I talked about Nat King Cole in the After Midnight Sessions before. Mm-hmm. Was that a, something that they turned you on to? Uh, or was that something that you discovered yeah, on your own? They were, my parents were both big Nat King Cole fans. I think when they were first dating and stuff, they were into, into Nat King Cole. So um, the After Midnight Sessions album was around the house a lot when I was a kid. And then when I finally got a CD player when I got older, that was one of the first CDs I bought. So yeah, you know, I like working to that record too. I played that in my upholstery shop a lot, you know, and it was, it's a good record for me to work to. Oh, you used to play it in the upholstery yeah. shop you worked in? Yeah. The electric fiddle on that album too, Stuff Smith on the electric fiddle was a big turnout for me. I, I used a lot of electric fiddle on this this Blunderbuss album as well. Yeah. Who, who ended up playing it? Did you play it on it? 
Um, the uh, couple people, Fats Kaplan is yeah. a guy, uh, electric fiddle player on here. Uh, Mark Watrous plays, but he, he played with the Dead Weather. I mean, excuse me, uh, Raconteurs on tour. Uh, yeah. Fiddle player. Let me ask you a question. Did you, uh, since you moved to Nashville, any, uh, go, and there's some record stores here, any great finds that you found, like mm. going out record shopping, anything in particular? Well, you know, the funny thing about me is this. I have to watch myself. I, I have always kept myself from being a record collector, like actually getting them, because loving music and, and collecting the records, like I like producing them and making these things. But to collect them, I have to be very careful because for me, as a songwriter, what can end up happening is I can end up falling in a trap of emulation and emulating things from the past. You know, the trick is to find the romance and the appreciation and love it, and even the trivialness of, of how things are made, you know, and what was happening at what time, which I love all that stuff. But I have to be very careful because I came from a, like the garage rock scene or whatever, all these kind of hipsters who had all these huge record collections, but they also had bands or they worked at record stores and they were also in a band. So every song they did, it had to be a reference of, the, well, I'm writing a song like, the like scenes so and of so. the count Yeah, five, I'm right? trying to do a song like Small Faces. Yeah. Well, like, oh yeah, but I don't, want, I don't want to copy anybody. I want to do my own thing. So you, you have to carry, I have to keep one foot in each yeah, side, you know, exactly. which is a good place to be, I think. I think so too. Mm. I mean, it is. And at the end of the day, it's not always about collecting, it's about the music itself. That exactly, really exactly, yeah. You know, sure. Amazing thing. Well, listen, Jack, I yeah. want to say it was great to have you on this podcast. I'm good hanging out with you here at Third Man. And I'm, I'm blown away by just how incredible the whole, I mean, there's a stage here, there's a record store out front, studio, and all your masters are here too. Yeah. Locked up, airtight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're one of the few artists. I remember when you were first being courted by record labels, Jack, mm. and you were one of the first artists who went in and said, hey, it's a split deal, you know, we own our masters. You know, mm. now obviously everybody tries to do that because, you know, with records not selling like they used to, yeah. people are like, gotta hold on to some of those things. And the record labels try to do these 360 deals where yeah. they wanna own your merch, they wanna all this crap. Yeah. But you were one of the first people to walk in there and actually say, this is the way it's gotta be, and it worked out, you know? It was a lucky moment for us because everybody wanted to sign us, shockingly, to our surprise. And we are also kind of either too smart or too dumb at the moment to kind of say, well, this is the only way we're doing it. We want, we want this and this and this. And we got it, you know, and I, I, it was shocking. It's like, I can't believe we got that. Well, who cares about this two-piece band? I mean, who, who the hell are we? But we got it. I think the deal was because we turned down money, you know, we didn't want huge advances and stuff. And I think the label was like, all right, if you don't want, sure, we'll keep the money. We'll give you your masters or whatever. Who cares? So it was a good scenario. Just, you know, when certain things line up just in the right time, it had to, a year later, two years later, it might not have happened. You know? Yeah. I mean, well, it's great, though. I mean, you don't owe anybody anything in that way. I like you know? that, yeah. Yeah. And look what you've done. I mean, putting everything back into the third man, I think it's fantastic. Jack, thanks for uh, taking the time to hang out with us. Thanks, today. man. I appreciate it. Uh, it was great to hang with yeah. you. Jack White on the Hivecast. This has been the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. For all things music, news, interviews, live events, and more, go to mtvhive.com.